and gentlemen, it is now time for the main event. Please join me in the privilege of introducing to the ring. He is the longest reigning NWA World Heavyweight Champion. He has been a booker of three of the most major territories. And he had, in my opinion, a role in the greatest wrestling film of all time, Sylvester Stallone's Paradise Alley. That barely touches the surface of this man's illustrious career. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, put your hands together for Dory Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And today we've got the legendary WWE Hall of Famer and NWA champion Dory Funk Jr. Uh, live. Uh, I went to his Bang TV studios in Ocala, Florida, where he runs the Funking Conservatory Wrestling School and did a live podcast in front of uh, his uh, countrymen, students, fans, uh, local people who just wanted to come hang out with us. We had a great time, as you'll hear. We covered his career from his first wrestling match ever uh, in the early 60s to working one of uh, Andre the Giants' last matches to tagging with his brother Terry. All their great matches against the Briscoes. We talk about Dory's travel to work in Japan with Baba and Inoki, how he eventually went to All Japan when the company split. And of course, we talk about the WWE, what it was like for him working uh, for Vince McMahon as Haas Funk. Uh, it's the 50th anniversary this week of Dory Funk winning the NWA Championship for the very first time way back in February of 1969. And here we are, bringing you Dory Funk Jr. live on Talk is Jericho, starting now. All right, guys. Um, I love the fact that the dude here is... I've been wrestling for 30 years, and he's holding the ropes down as if I've never been in the ring before. <laughs> I think I can figure it out. <laughs> that was a hell of an introduction, man. Jeez, Luis, can you just follow me around and say that wherever I go? Thank you. Okay, shut up. All right, so <laughs> here we are uh, in Ocala, Florida, at, at the Bang uh, uh, Arena, I guess we would call it. And I've been doing Talk as Jericho for about five years. And one of the guests I've wanted to have, had, have on for a long time is Dory Funk Jr. Um, yeah, Dory Funk, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
Let, let, let me interrupt just a please. second. I'm proud to be here myself, but look at the superstar that we've got here, Chris Jericho. <laughs> He's a superstar in Japan. He's a superstar in the United States of America. He's a musician. He's an artist. He's a fabulous personality, and we are extremely proud to have you here on Bang TV in Ocala, Florida. Yes, yes. And I appreciate it. And once again, you guys obviously see Dory quite a bit because you live in Ocala, but you have to understand, you know, the legendary status that Dory has, all the different things that you've done, and the fact you're still wrestling. And I love the uh, the addition of the bullwhip now that you that you were huh. using. You used it tonight. I saw you using it in Japan. I'm I'm feeling it's, that got, it's got a name. It's actually has a name. Whippersnapper. <laughs> so you're using whippersnapper and it's I'm, I'm envisioning that you used to use this when you were a kid on the farm in texas that is true what would you use a bullwhip for uh actually i would uh it wasn't a bullwhip i hand made a a whip out of clothesline but actually what i do is i would crack the whip and cut paper out of my neighbor's mouth really and yes yes that's where, that's where I first handled the whip. Like just something to do on a Saturday night or something? Just, or? <laughs> well, I was even younger. I was like uh, 10 or 12 years old. Wow, yeah. Because you, did, did, you, did you grow up actually on like a farm in Amarillo? Uh, Flying Mare Ranch. So it was a ranch then? Yes, it's outside of Amarillo, Humbugger, mm -hmm. Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, beautiful place. Fabulous uh, duck and goose hunting. Um, it was just a place that you could... Learn about life as you grew up. Mm -hmm. Now, your dad, was he wrestling as well? Uh, my father's been wrestling since I was... Uh, he's been wrestling professional since I was five years old. So you grew up in the business? I grew up in... Yes. I had to get in the ring and practice amateur wrestling when I was seven years old. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to be off fishing. <laughs> and my father would send kids after me to get me and say, Come on down. We got to... Practice for wrestling, amateur <laughs> wrestling at the time. At seven. At seven, yes. Because that's how it was a lot more now, and, and we'll talk about this later, how the business, it's a lot more accessible now, a lot easier to kind of get into it. But when you're talking about coming in the business in the 60s, it was much more of a closed society. And I imagine getting into it, especially if your father wasn't in it, was very difficult. It was, uh, it was different than it is today, much different. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that affected my life as NWA world champion is there were 30 separate territories, each with 30 wrestlers, each making a good living for their family. And we might think that it's not much for a referee to go around and earn $400 a week. But if you put the inflation calculator on it, our referees in Amarillo, Texas, were clearing two to three thousand dollars. Hmm. Uh, it's just the difference in the value. You know, a Hershey bar used to be a nickel. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and right. I, ju I just paid a, a buck thirty for a Hershey bar. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 when you're talking about getting into the business, 
was it was it was it a lot harder like what was kind of the the uh the path that you had to go through to, to actually get started wrestling well it just depends on on where you came from but uh in the amarillo area texas you had to have some amateur wrestling background and I've got to thank my father for insisting that I learn to wrestle. As I went through uh, high school, I was uh, West Texas AAU amateur wrestling. And that's a big. That, that's a big amateur wrestling school, correct? It's quite famous for 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 wrestling. West Texas. Yeah. It's more famous for football. Football. Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I'm from Canada, so there you <laughs> no. go. I knew it was famous for something. Yeah. No, West Texas was famous for football. We actually uh, went down and uh, played in the Sun Bowl, and we beat Ohio University, mm. 15 to 14. And my father was a promoter of wrestling, so he had a contract waiting for me when the aircraft landed back in Amarillo, and I signed the contract to be a professional wrestler on the wheel wheels of uh, TWA four-engine airline <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of your 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 destiny almost if you grow up with your dad as the promoter and was that did you want to do it or, or were you kind of more thinking about being a pro football player i was thinking about uh pro football but my father gave me the way to become a professional wrestler my first year in the business it's gonna sound strange i earned sixteen thousand dollars it doesn't sound like much at all but that was Mickey Mantle's salary. Wow! For the New York Yankees, the same year, 1963. You made sixteen thousand dollars in 1963. Uh, yes, that's huge. That would, yes. I mean, that's got to be. It doesn't sound huge, but it is. But like you said, with the inflation calculator, I mean, that's got to be five hundred thousand dollars, four hundred somewhere 000. around there. Yes. Wow! So your territory was the, the territory was that. Hot at the time? Not only the Amarillo Territory, but 30 territories across the United States, Canada. There were five territories in Canada. Right. Uh, you know, you came sure. from, from Stu Hart's from Stampede, exactly. Yeah, Stampede. Yeah. Stampede Wrestling. Um, Mexico, uh, Puerto Rico, mm. Hawaii, Australia. There were a lot of places to work in those days. Were you working on top uh, in Amarillo? My father was a promoter. <laughs> <laughs> Typical, right? <laughs> yeah. First year. Sure. Well, first first year, I uh, and the privilege of having the people that knew him that came in to work with me in Amarillo, Texas, Luthez, wow. Pat O'Connor, Sonny Myers, who I know you'll know, but... Others may not. Uh, it was a real uh, so challenge. It was a challenge, but at the same time, it was such an opportunity. Vern Gagne is another one. And what a group of guys to learn from uh, out of those guys that you're talking about. I mean, those are some of the greatest of all time. Oh, they are. Ever. Yes. Right? Yes. Did, were they giving you advice, or were they willing to help you out a bit? Or? Well, my father didn't have... Uh, garage for cars uh, he had a two-car garage attached to his house but it had a wrestling mat on the floor mm. and our cars we didn't care where we parked them <laughs> <laughs> we had wrestling practice 
in the garage. Hmm. And he had uh, wrestlers like Ruffy Silverstein, Vern Gagne, Bob Geigel. Uh, those are really big names in amateur wrestling. And they came in and they trained with me. They worked out with me. And I can still remember, you know, the lessons they taught me. Mm. Bob Geigel. He looked at me. He says, I'm going to tell you I'm going to get your right leg. And then I'm going to do it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> sure enough, I just made a move on Bob Geigel. He grabbed my arm. He pulled it down. I blocked it with my leg, and he had my leg. He picked it up, and I was on the ground. But I had some great athletes, uh, great amateur wrestlers, and great professional wrestlers to learn from, especially in my first year. Mm. Do you remember your first match? Don Fargo, yes. <laughs> Never forget it. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about that. Were you nervous? I was a bit nervous. I had... Um, an All-American from uh, West Texas University, Jerry Logan. He was a running back. He was my second. Don Fargo had his brother for a second. The whole West Texas football team was on one side, and the whole Tascosa High School amateur wrestling team was on the other side. And I was very, very, to tell the truth, very nervous against going somebody going up against somebody like Don Fargo. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, I came out with a win on the match, and it was just the start of a career <laughs> that I had opportunities for football, but I never looked back. I stayed mm -hmm. with professional wrestling all the way. So how long was it uh, until you became uh, NWA champion? Was that 69, 70? Uh, February 11, 1969. So that's very early. You've been working for six years. Obviously, you were a natural. You must have taken it to it very well. But explain, because uh, in this day and age, it's so hard to comprehend, but explain the process of how you became the NWA champion and all the different <laughs> polit political allies that you had to have to get it. How did I do it? Spinning toe hold on Gene Kaniski, <laughs> and I knew it was going to happen when he tapped out. <laughs> but, but I mean the opportunity to get there, though, because back in the NWA days, you had all the territories that would have to kind of decide who they wanted to be in that position or who would get the chance to be in that position. Who would get the chance? Right, to right, right. But so are they having a meeting? But my father was a member of the board of directors of the National Wrestling Alliance, mm -hmm. and... From, from the time I started, he said, you really need to make the appearances in the major cities. St. Louis became a, a, a frequently... It was uh, a hotbed. It was a hotbed yeah. for professional wrestling. Los Angeles was. Uh, the Florida Territory was. And Eddie Graham was featuring a lot of really great wrestlers down here in Florida. So my father saw that to it that I traveled to all those different places. Jim Crockett in North Carolina, fabulous place to work. Nick Goulas in Tennessee. And I'll tell you a story about Nick Goulas a little later. But uh, there were all these different places with groups of 40 wrestlers making a good living. Mm -hmm. And NWA world champion was the highest level you could be at at that time. Mm -hmm. 
because as of all the guys in all the territories, when you became champion, then it was your responsibility, like you said, to go from place to place to place and work with the local, whoever the top guy was in that territory. Yeah, but there were people like Johnny Valentine, Wahoo McDaniel, uh, Billy Robinson, Mm -hmm. uh, really tremendous athletes. Having the opportunity to work with these guys, I just learned and learned and learned as I went through. And the other thing that you've got to know about being a champion, the important thing is that the next time you come back, you draw a big house. And that's something that uh, you've learned. And I know you and I went at things in different ways, but the judgment of your work in the ring is the box office attraction yeah. you become. And you've done a fabulous job of that. And but, I, but that's the truth. Like you said, if you weren't drawing as the champion... No, they'd find somebody else. It wouldn't be a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah. So you, no. you, you mentioned so many classic names from Wahoo to, to, to Valentine. Who were some of the guys that, that you learned from the most and had the best matches with out of that time frame? I learned a lot from Billy Robinson. The thing I especially learned is <laughs> the forearm smash. Right. And he was British, and that's a, a British-style wrestling move. Big time, the European uppercut. The right? European yeah. uppercut, yes. Um, I learned from, I tried to learn from everybody I wrestled. Uh, I went to uh, Tennessee. I, I, the opportunity was there for me. Everybody knew I was going to show up. So I showed up late, 9 o'clock, for a show in Tennessee one night. And I walked in the dressing room and I said, who am I working with? And the wrestlers looked at me and the promoter and he said, you're wrestling Whitey over there, Whitey Caldwell. And I looked at Whitey Caldwell and he was about 170 pounds. And I thought, these guys got to be ribbing me. That's not who I'm working with. <laughs> So I figured, well, I can take the rib just as well as any anybody else. So I waited, and I waited, and time came to go to the ring. I went to the ring, not even knowing in my heart who I was working with. And Whitey Caldwell came walking in the ring. <laughs> so, You're like, this guy? Him? I thought that, but he, he was a heck of a kid, and we worked a return. We came back uh, a month later. And drew a capacity house. And that was, that's what being champion was all about. What can you do for the promotion? What can you do for your opponent? And what can you do for the wrestling fans? And that, that's a lot of responsibility, too. Like you said, to be, to be the champion. And you go to Tennessee, for example. And it's Whitey Caldwell, who might not be as good as when you go to Florida and it's Jack Briscoe. But it's your job to make all the matches great. That's Every, your responsibility. That's the responsibility. Yeah. And that's, yeah. the, that's the reason I was there for four and a half years instead of a very short... Right. They knew they could count on you to always deliver. To always, to always box office attraction the next time when you come back. Let's talk about your, one of your most famous opponents as far as rivals goes. You mentioned Jack Briscoe. And it's interesting, when you watch Funk Briscoe matches now in 2019, if you don't understand how the wrestling works, you might watch it and go, wow, this is a long match, and there's not 
Not that there wasn't a lot of action, but it's very slow paced. But they're also very geniusly put together. <laughs> but you, you know, if you're like a wrestling fan who watches, you know, I don't know, uh, a New Japan or, or WWE now, you might watch one of those matches and not understand the brilliance of that. I used to love to go in the ring as NWA champion, incognito kind of, just kind of slip down to the ring, get in the ring, get my introduction, take my jacket off, put it in the corner, and Jack Briscoe was on the other side, and just take my time, walk around the ring with him a little bit, tie up with him. He was fabulous with the arm drag. Pop one arm drag and pop the people. But you'd try to, I'd try to even quiet him down. So then a match with Jack Briscoe was like a dream. Hmm. He was he was so good. The only thing he had a he had a little thing that uh, his hair was starting to fall out. And if I ever, <laughs> re- if I ever grabbed him, and mussed up his hair, I get. <laughs> Damn it, Funk! Stay out of my hair. <laughs> And you didn't have to worry about him doing that to you. No, not at all, because <laughs> my hair was gone anyhow. <laughs> Your hair was gone when you started. <laughs> but that's that's interesting. <laughs> I, I still got these here. <laughs> a couple, and, there's a couple and, of long ones. And I comb them, too. <laughs> so wait, wait, how, like, you guys were going long periods of time, too. You'd work Jack Briscoe, not just for 60 minutes, but it would be like... 70 minutes or 80 minutes. We did We did 90 minutes. Oh, my gosh. What is, what's the psychology? I've never wrestled 90 minutes. I mean, huh. maybe 45 at one point. But what, what's the psychology for that? How do you keep the people uh, involved in a 60-minute, 80-minute, 90-minute match? They've got to believe in what they're seeing. And some people call it suspension, suspension of disbelief. But for that moment, for that time that they're there, those people were, and it was the NWA World Championship that we had to work with to make the people believe in what we were doing. Mm. Uh, the belt meant so much. The world champion, I hate to say this, made so much money that there was so much attraction to the NWA World Heavyweight Championship that the people the wrestling fans, for the moment, for the time, actually believed in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I believe in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I know Jack would, especially after I messed up his hair. <laughs> <laughs> or stiffed him with a European... Or stiffed him with a... Yeah. But the, you just hit, hit on something that's very uh, uh, interesting, because it's not like this now. Uh, you, the, how, much, how much the belt meant. And That's true. How, right? And how much money you would make as the champion. So I'm sure when you become the NWA champion, everybody's gunning to take you out of that position. That's the story in all 30 territories, yes. Right. Everybody wants that chance, right? Everybody wants that Yes. Spot. Was there a lot of politics at that point in time with other people's fathers? Let's just say uh, Von Erich trying to get his son. Not as long as the box office sales were there. Gotcha. There was none. There was family pressure on me. Uh, that was very, very difficult. But fortunately for, for what I was able to make, I've got uh, three kids right now that are, two of them are teachers, one is a doctor, 
then it all came through education and things through professional wrestling that I was able to provide them the opportunity. How many days uh, a year were you on the road as the champion? 300 matches at least, maybe more. And something that a lot of people don't realize in this day and age is that two of the biggest days of the year for wrestling back then was Christmas and Thanksgiving, right? (laughs) (laughs) Didn't see a lot of family time during those uh, parts of the year. No, I didn't. And that's uh, one of the things that really caused me family trouble is having to be away on uh, Mm -hmm. Christmas. And uh, it just... It became, became more than I could handle. Because a lot of guys like Flair will talk about that. Bruno, I had Bruno on Talk is Jericho. He said the same. Sure. Just everybody wants this opportunity. Then once you get it, you're like, I can't take it anymore. You know, were, were you were you ready uh, <laughs> when it was, uh, when you lost the title? No, my ex-wife said, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly you lost. Yeah. <laughs> after. Very strange. And you, did you lose it to Harley? Was it Harley that you lost it to? Yes. Gotcha. Yes. And and um, would you have a rematch with him once you lose it? Did you guys have a series of matches? Where, tell us about the night you lost the title. The night I lost the title? Um, there's a pickup truck accident that's involved in this, too. Yeah, I've heard that uh, story. Tell, tell us about that, because there's a little bit of controversy about that, isn't there? Yeah, well, I was scheduled to wrestle Jack Briscoe. And I had a pickup truck accident. Uh, we were moving cattle from my, across my father's ranch down to the creek that ran through it, chasing cattle. And I ran a pickup truck right off into the creek and into the steering wheel, messed up my forehead, messed up my neck. So I had to cancel out of a match with Jack Briscoe. And that was scheduled for Houston, Texas. And nobody knew I was going to wind up in a, in a car accident, but I did. So that caused problems that I didn't show up in Houston to face Jack Briscoe. And everything was held up. I was unable to wrestle until I went back in the ring, and that was scheduled against Harley Race. And that's where I dropped the NWA. World Heavyweight Championship to Harley. Were there people behind the scenes when we're talking about 30 promoters and 30 companies that thought that you worked the truck accidents because you didn't want to lose <laughs> <There> the title? <laughs> you know, I, I can't change those 30 promoters' minds, mm-hmm. but they're all gone now. Mm. And everything is new and everything is different. Uh, I've had the privilege of traveling and working like you have in Japan and had, I don't want to be sound like I'm bragging, but had huge success wrestling. Huge success. As you know, yeah. <laughs> yourself too. Yeah. But it was a matter of uh, figuring out a working style that the Japanese people believed in. And it was very, very hard because you go in the ring and you do your best and you know there's total silence. And what you have to realize, and what I realize right here, the silence is because people are listening. Yeah. It's not because they're disinterested. Yeah, when you first go to Japan and you go to the ring, I remember thinking, I first went in 91, and thinking like, 
do I suck? Like, yeah, no one, yes. No one's yes. making any sound. Like, this must be terrible. But then you realize, like you said, there's more watching, studying, listening, uh, appreciating what you're doing. They're watching every move. Yeah. And I realized that some of the people that were there as professional wrestlers on the same tours didn't realize it. And the quieter the people got, the more they'd punch, the more they'd rake your eyes, the more they'd reach in and pull out a gimmick. <laughs> and they only got total silence. That's all they had. You have to understand it. You know, yeah. it's interesting to me. We talked about this earlier about how many times you've been to Japan. Uh, how many times do you think you've gone? 80 times. 80 times. <laughs> uh, which is so incredible because I'm at about 60. And someone said to me, do you think you're the guy who has the most trips out of any? I said, no, Dory's got more. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe Hanson, Butcher. But <laughs> to go that many times, you got to be good, you know, uh, because like you said, those fans there, they're not going to settle for a subpar performer, worker, someone they don't believe in. Um, but they're not going to settle for that anywhere. These no. People well, you're right. Aren't either. You're right. But to get invited back to Japan that many times <laughs> yeah. over, what's your first tour that you did in Japan? Uh, 69. That's 50 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> 50 years of Japan. I can remember the matches. That was Antonio Inoki, a very famous mm -hmm. of course. wrestler over there. Giant Baba. Uh, Seiji Sakaguchi. Maybe I know you know the yeah, names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. When you first went in 69, what was the company called? Was it? It was Japan Pro Wrestling. And Anoki and Baba were the same, same company. company, yes. Wow. <laughs> you would go there, and they each had an individual television station. Inoki had his television station. Baba had his television station. And you're sitting in the dressing room. Yes. Really? Indi individual contracts. And yes, and somebody would come over and say, what can you do for Inoki, you know? Then he'd run out, and then someone else would come over and say, what can you do for Mr. Baba? <laughs> <laughs> and you, as you went in the ring, you had to balance your performance with those two guys because they were both superstars, and both uh, had their own television contracts, it was a it was a pressurized situation. So do you mean like Anoki's matches were on one station? Yes. And Baba's matches were on another. Yes. Really? Yes. So you worked with both of them. Both of them on the same tour. So I did tag team match with both of them. Wow. Okay. So this opens up a whole other. Uh, <laughs> so tell me the differences. Uh, what was what was the style that you would work with Baba and Anoki? Who do you think was better? Like what were the comparisons? There's no way you're gonna get me to say who's better. <laughs> yeah, don't say that. Sorry. Let's rephrase. You still work in Japan. But what were, the <laughs> what were the differences in working between the two? Because Baba and Anoki were huge, huge stars, but different. Different. Yes. Inoki was wrestling action. Uh, and the, the wrestling fans loved it. Baba was strong style, and the wrestling fans loved him. They were split right down the middle. Hmm. But you uh, had to be, pre be prepared to, that Baba was going to hit you with the big chops, the big foot. Inoki was going to scoop your legs and try to take you off your feet. <laughs> you know? right. uh, working but shooting. You know, saying it, it, sure, it goes it goes together, and, and that's that was very much Japanese style, 
even when I first went there, like I said, in the early 90s, it was a war to shoot. You were fighting. You were fighting, for, fighting what? for your life. You had to fight for what you got. You're right. It's changed now, but <laughs> yeah. back then, you'd be like, okay, suplex me in my head, I'll suplex you in your head. Punch <laughs> yeah. me in the face, I'll punch you in the face. And that's basically what it was like. That's right? true, yes. Let me ask you a question about, about traveling to Japan in 1969. I mean, now there's lay-down seats and movies and all this. How, like, what was it like on a plane 15 hours back then? We had to stop in Hawaii. We couldn't. We couldn't go direct okay. from here to Japan. Mm-hmm. But I did. Uh, I enjoyed that too, because I would book my flights so I could fly from Japan to Hawaii, get there in the morning, go out to the beach, sun and surf, come back in the same rental car, go to the airport, jump on the flight, and complete my trip back home <laughs> to the United States. Nice layover. It was, Hawaii was a nice layover. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Japan was also very much a tag team company in a lot of ways, especially when you went to all Japan. Uh, and let me ask you this. What was your decision to, that when when uh, Japan promotion split, Inoki starts New Japan, Baba starts All Japan, how did you decide which company to go to? My father became booker for All Japan. And... Uh, there were several people in the running, but uh, the Amarillo Territory had received several Japanese wrestlers from all Japan. And it was like, is Fritz von, von Erich going to get the uh, Booker or is Dory Funk Sr.? And it was very, very close. Presents were exchanged, but my father, Dory Funk Sr., got the uh, nod for booking for all Japan pro wrestling. You talking about booking the foreigners or booking the entire territory? No, the foreigners. The foreigners, gotcha. Yes. Gotcha. So then obviously it becomes a very Amarillo heavy. Yes, lineup. yes, it did, yes. Right. Who was going over there besides you at the time? Guy by the name of Bull Ramos, mm-hmm. Danny Hodge. Uh, and we didn't try to restrict it to Amarillo territory. Uh, we sent wrestlers from all over the United States. Mm. Eventually, uh, Jack Briscoe. Actually, I wrestled Jack Briscoe in Japan. Mm. And we, uh, it, it was the Amarillo Territory wrestlers. When you started doing like the, the tag team tournaments and that sort of thing, it was always a Butcher and Hanson were the big team. And, uh, but it was the first we stand Stan Hanson the first time, too. Did you? Not this Stan Hanson. No, Stan no. Hansen, here. There's a guy here called Stan Hanson who's not <laughs> But before he, before he made the trip, he had a little run-in with my brother, Terry Funk. And my brother pushed him in the swimming pool, then went to his hotel room, and Stan Hansen was scheduled to go to Japan. We had lined him up, and he was banging on Terry's door, and Terry wouldn't open the door. So Stan kicked in the glass door on the bottom, and when he brought his foot out, it sliced his Achilles tendon. Oh, my, oh. So Stan didn't have the opportunity to go to Japan for a year mm. because that Achilles tendon is, I don't think it uh, cut it all the way into, but it did, the, it did the damage that kept Stan out for a year. You mentioned uh, your brother Terry. Yes. And you guys were a famous tag team, uh, not only in Japan, the only brother, two brothers that had the NWA championship. When you guys were growing up, were you fighting each other a lot? <laughs> what was the relationship as kids? I was the boss. Because <laughs> yeah, you're older, right? How, how many years older are you? 
three year, three three and a half. And that might as well be a lifetime when you're 15 and 12, right? Oh yeah, or <laughs> nine and six. <laughs> when, when it got to be where he was 17 and I was 20, I kind of backed off a little bit. <laughs> but what a great uh, a combination! Did you enjoy tagging with with your brother? I enjoyed because I was able to work a totally different style than he did, and he had the same freedom. He could be the wild and crazy guy that he is. And uh, the people responded to what I had to sell him, and they responded to what he had to sell him. Mm. And he was a great tag team partner, and we took care of each other. That's a great point, because there is you know, two different funks here. Your brother's been There's two different ones, Right, yes. you're much more technical, <laughs> hard-hitting. Terry is a little bit more wacky. But it would have been a bit boring, wouldn't it, if... Absolutely. Both of us were doing the same thing. Right, you know? right, right. Totally, totally. <laughs> but that, and that's, I think that's one of the reasons why uh, both of you were so, uh, did so well in the business because you did have completely different styles. So when they put, or when they give Terry the opportunity to, um, to be the NWA champion, it's not like it's Dory Jr. Jr. It's a completely different guy. Totally different. Yeah. Yes. Were you, uh, were you proud of him when he became the champ? I was part of him becoming the champ. <laughs> How? Tell us the story. Actually, I was on the board of directors. Oh. <laughs> There's a theme here. Those damn well, this... funks. <laughs> this was after my father passed away. Mm. And I became a member of the board of directors. And Fritz von Erich was president. There was a lot of um, influence going for Harley Race, and I made a talk for my brother, Terry Funk, and there was something that maybe caused heat for a long time, but I made the comment to the board of directors that they should know if they voted for Terry Funk, they would have somebody with a college education as NWA world champion. That was hard to say, it was hard to do, but it made the change. Mm. They wanted to have the prestige of having a guy who was not only brawn, but also had some brains. Yes. Interesting. I still love this concept of like these secret... Now, I didn't say my brother graduated from college. <laughs> he bought the degree on the street. Every, every, everybody else. But I said he had a college education, not that he graduated classic wrestling right you told it was classic it was classic almost told the truth (laughs) almost told the truth did you ever have a match against terry i did and actually it's on uh video Mm. and i wrestled him for 50 55 minutes and finally uh caught him with a a schoolboy roll-up one two three I won the only match that my brother and I have ever faced. <laughs> I'm still paying for it, too. <laughs> Older brother again. <laughs> Older brother. Was that in Japan? Uh, no, uh, it was over here. Who were some of the, the, the teams that you loved working with in, in, in all Japan? Jumbo Taruta and, uh, as a single, and he and Baba as a tag team. Mm. They were really good. Hanson and Brody. How was it working with them? Tough. <laughs> watch, watch out for the clothesline. <laughs> for me, either, because Bruiser wasn't. Uh, uh, Bruiser wasn't easy either. He wasn't going. He wasn't on. easy either. Yeah. 
Yeah, Bruiser Brody and uh, Stan Hansen were as tough as you get to work with. You just got to fight for your life mm. and stay in there. And, but, and that's their style, though. You have to, That's their style, you yes. You expect it. Yes. What, what, what about like when you're uh, outside of the ring, when you guys are hanging out doing these three-week, four-week, think six-week tours? Was there, uh, you guys having some good times, having some drinks and, and that sort of a thing? Yeah, I, um, I quit drinking 20 years ago. So. <laughs> because of that. Because, yes. But not the 70s, though. <laughs> no, not the 70s. Oh, heck. I used to get upset at uh, Marty if she would walk in the liquor store and come out with any less than three bottles of wine. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good night out. Yeah. But were, were, were Japanese people kind of scared of you guys when you're walking down the street of Tokyo at that point in time? I've, I have found the people very good to mingle with, and part of it's because I worked very hard to pick up their language. And I can uh, speak from the ring in, in Japanese. And I have uh, slogans that I like to use. Uh, Nihon no pro res fan mina sama. And not to know at the kai go wa. Makoto ni arigato Which means thank you to all. And it means it here too. Thank you to all the wrestling fans for the warm support that they give. But, uh, you know, when I first started going over there, I went one year in 95, I went every month and I was sick really, of, yeah. And I was sick <laughs> of not being able to, to communicate. It was very hard to learn Japanese. So I learned how to read it or how to gotcha, read Katakana. Gotcha. And a lot of Japanese people said, that's what Dory Funk did. You like Dory Funk. You appreciate, really? yeah, you respect the culture and. People, I think, really appreciate when you try as as a, as a foreign guy, as a guy. Yeah, that's a tough language to learn. To learn to speak in, but to read it was a little bit easier for me because if, right. if you talk about katakana, the characters are similar to our mm. letters, just one or two lines, rather than those intricate, sure. you know, art form that they have. They have five languages. Yeah, five languages. Right. English, hiragana, katakana, what, what, kanji, kanji. Yeah, and. The other one. The other one. <laughs> Whatever it is. It's, it's a difficult language. But the fans appreciate that, though. Like they, like I said, the fact that you could speak or read a little bit of it, they really uh, knew you were going the extra mile. They do very much. Mm -hmm. and Let's talk about um, where I trained up in Calgary with Stu Hart. Hmm. I know Stu was... I was going to tell you. Please. I had heard the reputation of Stu Hart. <laughs> the dungeon down below in the basement where he took all the wrestlers and he stretched them out and he cross-faced them and bloodied them up. Those were the rumors that came out of Calgary. So, sure enough, I was champion. I worked through his territory, was invited to his house. Dinner, beautiful dinner, long, long table. He has 12 children and we're all sitting at the table and then dinner's over and the oldest kid came to me and said, would you like to come down to the basement and train? <laughs> I had no idea what I was going to get into. But I got to say, I went down to the basement with him, trained with the kids, talked to them, worked with them, just like I do here with our kids, mm -hmm. and was treated with total respect. 
he was a big fan of yours because Stu appreciated the guys who had the shoot background. Yeah. Right? He liked guys that could wrestle. Yes. Yeah. So he would do every year with the Stampede, which is in July. Uh, the Stampede's a big uh, festival affair that comes to Calgary. And it would be the big, you know, uh, Stampede Wrestling show. And he would bring in the NWA champion, which I remember seeing pictures of you in the parade and all that sort of stuff. Sure. Yeah. Did you work with... That, that doggone Stu Hart did it again. I had heard before I ever got to Calgary, you know, he always breaks down his truck in the parade and the whole parade stops, right? <laughs> You've heard that before. I, I just heard it right now, but it doesn't surprise me. So you're talking about the big parade that everyone's driving their floats and yes, his truck would dude, break down. His truck, well, Billy Robinson and I were in a convertible behind Stu Hart's truck. And sure enough, we got halfway through the parade, and the tires tread came and started coming off the tires, and it snapped, and it popped off, and in the middle of the parade, the whole truck turned sideways, blocked the whole parade for 15 minutes, and Billy Robinson and I got out of the car and walked the rest of the parade. <laughs> That's You've heard about Stu in the parade, for sure. Well, yeah. I've, like I said, I've seen pictures of you in the parade. Yeah. I didn't know that the car broke down, but that doesn't surprise you because he had 15 Cadillacs in the front part, uh, front porch of his house in the yard. Some of them worked, some of them some didn't. Some of them worked, some of them didn't. <laughs> piece, a, a piece of this one and a part of that one sticking together and go for like... I saw, I saw Stu Hart shut the door on the trunk and lock himself on a, on a Cadillac, locked himself in. And he had to roll down the window and come out of the Cadillac feet first, cowboy boots first. <laughs> did you work, uh, am, I, am I getting this wrong? Did you, did you work with Andre at some point in Calgary or that, just, that didn't happen? Maybe he brought Andre in. Not in Calgary. Did no. you work with Andre though? Oh yes, I've worked with Andre. Let's I, talk about that. I'm very close to having had Andre's last match. Really? Which was a six man tag. And we were in Japan, and Andre had one more match scheduled, but it was a non-televised match. And then he left and went home. Hmm. And his health was not good at that time. Japanese young boys would gather around him, the wrestlers, young boys are wrestlers, hmm. and they actually had to help him to the ring at the time. And uh, it was very sad situation to watch Andre at the end of his career. Mm -hmm. Because early in his career, he was as tough as anybody you'd walk in the ring with. Uh, but we had that last match, it was a six-man tag. He had one more match, went home, was and it. passed away, that was it. Did you work with him earlier in his career? Yes. Okay, so what's the, what's the uh, psychology? How do you work with Andre the Giant in you know 1982 when he's at his peak? You make him look like a million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> you just run and bounce off him type thing? or. Well, I, you know, I keep in my personality. I tried to do it different. Uh, wrestling and strong things that he can do. You can have a wrestling match with Andre. At least in those days you could. Hmm. And uh, I stuck with the wrestling. Just because it's my style. I can't change my style and become Andre the Giant, or become Joe the Gimmick Man that falls all over. Hmm. So I gotta stay with wrestling. 
That's interesting, and it's something like you, you mentioned that you have your training center here, and you've been training, you know, wrestlers for years. Uh, and psychology, people ask me all the time, so how do you, how do you learn psychology, and, and how do you, like, it's very hard to learn it. You have to just get it. It's got to be natural. Yes, the <laughs> yeah. light turns on one day. But how do you do that, and how do you tell your students or, or people that ask, like, what's what's your theory on the psychology of wrestling? I talk to them until I turn blue. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you tell them? These you got to listen to the people. And first comes the wrestling fans. And sometimes they're quiet, but you still got to listen to them. Are they buying what you're doing? And you can't just go back and forth and back and forth and up and down and fly. You lose interest in the fans. You've got to make each move count. Uh, we've been doing drills with Brian a couple days ago, but it can't be a headlock, an arm lock, a schoolboy, another headlock, a fireman's carry, an arm drag. People will get disinterested. It's got to have a story to it. Mm -hmm. And that's the hard part mm -hmm. about learning professional wrestling. Mm -hmm. Fans have got to become involved. They've got to pick a side. Say, so I, I want this guy's had a rough time. I want to see him do something. Um, it's not a, not an easy thing to learn. It's probably easiest, and we've been working a lot on these too. Technical moves are easy. Anybody can learn them. Anybody can do them. Yeah. Uh, most anybody can develop a few spectacular moves that really look good. And all our kids that have been with us have been able to do that. But putting it together in a logical point of view for the wrestling fans takes a long time. You have to be able to connect with the fans. Correct. That's the most important thing that I find. And that could be, like you said. Now you do it different than I do. Well, the different styles, right? Different Absolutely. styles, yes. Yeah. yeah. You're doing the same thing, but it's totally different. Mm -hmm. The different flavors, right? Yeah. The different flavors. But it's funny, though. I saw you take a, a Frankensteiner off the top rope from Rob Van Dam in about 1995 <laughs> or six. <laughs> so you're probably 60 years old, 62 years old. You still understood that to stay relevant, you needed to do some of these. I think it was moves. the other way. I think I gave Rob Van Dam the... <laughs> I think I gave him the Frankenstein. You know what the best part is? Your hat didn't, I know what he, your hat didn't even come off. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the match. I know what he did. He hooked the top rope with his feet. I pulled him, and I pulled him, and I pulled hard back into the middle of the ring, and I gave him the Frankenstein. <laughs> you did give him the Frankenstein, right? Yes. Yes. I knew there was something like that. Yes, it was, it was, that's what it was. What the hell were you doing giving a Frankenstein for? <laughs> This is true. I think you saw Terry do the moonsault and said, I got to up and do it one up him. You want Rob Van Dam's words? <laughs> what do you say? If you're going to use a move, do it right. Drop me on my head. Did you? Have you ever watched RVD work? Well, he drops, lands on his head. Yes. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> He's got a rubber neck. I wanted, I wanted to ask you about something. I, I, I vaguely remember this, so I did three seconds of research. Um, three seconds, three seconds research. research. And I remember this. So when I first started watching WWE, which was in 86, you were there. Right. You were Haas Funk. 
Haas Funk. Yes. Right, that's right, huh? So that's tell, right. Yes. How did you end up uh, working for Vince, and what was that like at that point in time? Okay, well, I, uh, the opportunity to work for Vince came. It was a phone call from my brother, and, and Vince is going to call you. Terry was all, already there, and the opportunity came to go up and shoot an angle between my brother and myself. And I don't remember who the other two guys were. But uh, we did, and it got over. It was successful. And my brother had an emergency at home and had to leave. And with that, I had to have a partner, and they uh, uh, picked Jimmy Jack Funk. Who was... Uh, Jesse Barr. Jesse Barr, right? Yeah. Sandy Barr's son. Yeah. Why did... Um, well, let me Let me go back a little bit. First of all, why did Vince change your name to Haas Funk? Well, it wasn't really changing my name because when I was playing football, they called me Haas. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> why would but, you... But I think, I think for uh, publicity that he needed to have a different name. Mm. My last name was Funk. Mm. Football players used to call me Haas. It was it natural. What did you think, um, we, we mentioned earlier about the 30 different promotions and, and all the different places you could go. What did you think when Vince started taking over each in, each territory to try and go completely national? I believed in the territories and I wasn't aware of how strong national television could be. And Vince put out a great show and the local territories, well Vince was so strong with the television uh, the network that the smaller shows couldn't compete with him. Mm -hmm. And uh, I used to go to Crockett's territory, Amarillo territory, Florida territory. The venue that we did our television in was no different than this, no bigger. Mm. But the venue that Vince McMahon did his television shows in were humongous, thousands and thousands of people and network television. So Vince's network overran everything. Now, new promotions are coming up, you know. Mm -hmm. New promotions are getting competitive television time because there's a flood of television stations out there now. That wasn't the case when Vince was strongest. When Vince McMahon was at his strongest, he had control of the television across the United States of America. But now, more and more people are getting television that goes nationwide. Hmm. New Japan, hmm. same thing, in this country. Right, right. Uh, your company that you just signed with. Yeah, AEW, All Elite. Going, going across the nation with it, strong television. It's interesting, we were talking about the territories, now it's like the territories are coming back, but they're all national TV. Now that everybody can get television, right? The territories are coming back. That's what I mean. Because you got WWE, you got AEW, you got New Japan, you got Impact, you got Ring of Honor, MLW. They all have national television. They're all different wrestling companies. You know, and they all need talent because there's only a certain amount of guys out there. They that is true. There are only a certain amount of guys. And there are only a certain amount of guys that can really get the job done. And we're proud of our kids that we have here. Some of them are on vacation. Some of them you've seen. But they can really get the job done. Mm -hmm. And we are 
a training facility and in the market to train wrestlers. But you have a, quite a pedigree of guys that you trained because I know you used to do the, the funking dojos uh, up in Stanford as well. For Vince, For yes. Vince. Yes. So tell us some of the guys that you trained up there. Test, Christian, uh, Mark Henry, who we may be seeing Mark Henry coming up soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kurt Angle. Angle, wow. Uh, Edge? Edge, Lita, mm. Mickey James. I mean, that's those are all super superstars. They all they all came yeah. through. Uh, Chris Hero. Mm-hmm. Wow. They they all came through the uh, WWE Funkin' Dojo. Mm-hmm. When you saw uh, Kurt Angle when he first started, because he was a natural right off the bat, and also obviously knew a little bit about amateur wrestling as well, won a freaking gold medal. What did you think of him as a, as a protege right off the bat? First thing I told him. I said, Kurt, you can do anything in professional wrestling that you did in amateur wrestling. Feel good, feel comfortable, just do it in a working way. And Kurt, was, he, he became a fabulous professional wrestler. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is he didn't give up what he, what he, what he was for real. Mm. He was able to incorporate that into his wrestling performance. Absolutely, yes. Right? Yeah, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the other NWA champions and your thoughts on them. Obviously, Ric Flair, one of the great Mr. Box Office, uh, didn't work hard to save money. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> I mean, he would sit you down and uh, buy all the drinks, and yeah. he, told me, he told me he used to go to St. Louis and get a five thousand dollar payoff and spend ten thousand. Yes, he would. <laughs> <laughs> But the box office draw, like you said. Box office attraction, yes, mm-hmm. as world champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, knew how to create an opponent every time out. Which is like we said, that's your job as the champion. That's your job as the champion. But he had, he had so much character, too. You know, his personality. His personality was phenomenal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> I, attempt. Can somebody do it? Woo! <laughs> You cleared your throat. I thought you were going to cough or something. You went, <laughs> But obviously... Uh, <laughs> I can't compare to Ric Flair. <laughs> Did you ever work with him? Uh, quite a few times. Mm. Yes. Did you... Uh, like, what was the kind of... I, I, it's interesting to me because Flair is such a bump and feed guy. Um, oh, I slow him down. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sure you love that. Oh, Yes. <laughs> So I know that uh, we talked about how many times you went to Japan. You still go to Japan and still wrestle at 77 years old? 76? 77. 77. So, I mean, that is, that's insane. Like 77 years old. And I saw the match. And it's, you know, you're still out there. You got the bullwhip. You, you reinvented your outfit and all that <laughs> sort of thing. Obviously, you still love performing even, you know, at this stage of your life. I still love performing. It's been my life. And I'd like to thank a couple of people from Japan that have been really good uh, friends and wrestlers and champions. Osamu Nishimura is our Bang TV world champion. And he defends that belt over in Japan on a regular basis. Mm. And uh, Yoshio Sumi, 
is the Bang TV general manager. And he's, an, he's another person that we depend on a lot in, in Japan. Not only for uh, business reasons, but for personal and fun reasons and uh, doing things together. Mm. And Osama Nishimura also. And, and you run shows here, we're, we're at the, uh, the Bang Arena, is that what we're called, is that the Bang? Bang TV Soundstage. Bang TV Soundstage, and you run shows out of here? Yes. Yeah, with your students? Yes. And you bring in other guys, or? Yeah, we're bringing, uh, at times we bring in other guys. We'd love to have you someday. <laughs> 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 Teach me how to use the whip, and it's a deal. <laughs> After watching your last match in Japan with uh, Tetsuya Naito, yeah, I'm a little afraid to turn you loose with my kids. <laughs> yeah, it was a crazy one. <laughs> I took a pile driver on the floor, and it gave me a, 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 a nice little bald spot there. <laughs> But uh, as we wind down your door, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, who are some of your favorite opponents? So when I say, like, who comes to mind right away? Uh, Jack Briscoe. That's the one, huh? First, Jerry Briscoe. Let's talk a little about Jerry for a second. Jerry's a little bit underrated because people mostly saw him as one of the stooges with Pat in the WWE and the Attitude <laughs> yeah. Era. And obviously, too, They don't want to mess with him, I know that. Oh, that's right, especially when he gets on that fire water. I'll tell him that face to face. Uh, but he... I talked to him today. Did you? Yes, yes. Well, I've been trying to get him on my show, too. Tell him... He, he, oh, he, I'll let him know. He lives right down the street from me, and I always see him taking out his garbage, and I always try and swerve at him, and every time he gives me the finger and he has no idea who I am, it's the same car every time, Jerry. I haven't changed my car. <laughs> but people... But people because, because Jack was so... Uh, NWA champion, so great, people forget that Jerry was very good as well. I absolutely loved working with Jerry Briscoe. And mm. I've worked some big matches with him in uh, St. Louis, especially, and it, it was a pleasure working with him. Mm. Did you have a lot of matches with the Briscoes versus the Funks? Quite a, yes. Yeah. Lots of them. That must have been great too. In, in Japan too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So who else? I, I remember one Briscoes versus the Funks, and a wrestling fan tried to get in the ring. And the two Briscoes and myself were on the mat wrestling, and we didn't see him. So the opportunity was there for him to come in and just kick the hell out of us. But uh, my brother Terry Funk saw him coming, <laughs> ran across the ring, uppercut, <laughs> blood everywhere, and down to the floor. <laughs> I always wondered what the mindset was for a person to try and get into the ring. Not a good I mean, idea. I know, I know the mindset of the wrestlers that are in the ring. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I always compared it to if you threw like a little fish into a pond filled with sharks. It's just like, get them, boys. Raw. <laughs> so we're talking about Jack, Jerry, uh, other of your favorite opponents. Uh, Valentine and Wahoo. Wow. Yeah. Let's talk a little about Johnny Valentine, too, because after the, is the plane crash, but tell us what he was like before the plane crash. He was as tough of a worker as there is in professional wrestling. You could not knock him off his feet no matter what you did. Whatever you did to him, he's standing there 
staring you right in the face. Uh, the fans believed in him 100%. They believed he was tough. I wrestled him a one-hour match in Houston, Texas. And at the end of the match, I had him nearly beat. So I asked John Valentine and the referee for five more minutes. So in the five, he agreed in five-minute overtime. I started out on top, but he turned it around and was kicking my ass at the end of the overtime. <laughs> so he asked the referee for five more minutes. So I looked at him, I said, hell no, I'm taking my belt and I'm leaving. <laughs> but that was our return to come back in a 90-minute match. Oh, so, <laughs> 90 more minutes of getting your ass kicked. <laughs> 90 more, yeah. Um, and when we're talking, how about some of the Japanese guys that you worked? Did you, did you, did you have a lot to do with Tenru? Uh, in all Japan? Yes, I did. I was Tenru's trainer. Really? So he yes. was my boss because he was the guy who worked oh, for him was your boss. with WAR. That's where I was in yeah. the 90s when I went every month and all that stuff. Great worker. Yes. A great guy. Great guy, yes. Yeah, because he came from Sumo, correct? He came from Sumo and he came... Uh, Baba sent him over here to train with me for professional wrestling. And... Uh, that was some. T that was back in the Amarillo days. But he he did a fabulous job for us. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it was a huge, huge star in Japan as well. Yes. Yeah. Um, last uh, last question for you. And it might not be an easy one. Okay. You can pick a couple. Let me guess. <laughs> what's what's your favorite match that you ever had, or a few of them that stand out? The one with Johnny Valentine was cool. The when one you just said. The one I just said. In Houston? In Houston, when mm. I turned around and walked out and said, I'll just keep the belt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the three, if I were to pick, pick out three of them, would be... Whatever, yeah. Valentine, Wahoo, Jack Briscoe, Antonio Inoki, Giant Baba, uh, Seiji Sakaguchi, uh, Osama Nishimura, and that was the last match I worked. Uh, only... Two months ago, and I had a blast with that. If, if I'd had five more minutes, I could be. <laughs> <laughs> are you gonna Are you gonna wrestle again? When's your next match? When's your next booking, kid? In negotiation. Okay. For but, February 11 or 12. But the idea is to still continue wrestling. You're gonna go until you can't go. <laughs> is that kind of your mindset? No, I do, do my best to keep myself in shape so I can go. <laughs> I'm not going to look at the can't can go side of it. <laughs> Last thing I know as well, um, at WrestleMania 2, you worked that card. What did you feel of being a part of WrestleMania? Did you think it would be as big as the Super Bowl eventually? As, as an old school guy who came in in 69, here you are in 86 or 87 at WrestleMania. What did you think of that? I, my, my opinion of Vince McMahon and what he does hasn't changed. He's a fabulous promoter. Uh, he's a genius. Stephanie is a genius also. And they worked their tail off to make that a great territory. It's not just, wow, man, it's not just America. It's around the world and World Wrestling Federation 
is a proper name for them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They really are. Well, Dora, I got to tell you, man, it's, it's very inspiring to be here to talk to you. And like I said, a huge honor for me. And also to still see you in the ring, still training, still doing what you love to do. That's what it's all about, man. You know, 77, 47, 87. You know, you never know. I have a phrase I like to say to the Japanese wrestling fans. Never quit. <laughs> there you go, guys. Never quit. Never quit. Never quit. Never quit. Never quit. Never quit. Ichimo Gambate Kudasai. Arigato Gazanas, Toy Funk San. All right, thank you. Thank you. All right, thanks to Dory Funk. 50 years of being the NWA champion. Uh, such a great experience going to Ocala, Florida, to the Bang TV studios to do the live podcast, Live Talk is Jericho. Dory is still running the Funkin' Conservatory Wrestling School. And if you want to learn from one of the best, check out the school at dory-funk.com. That's dory-funk.com. Go check it out now. Get trained by one of the greatest champions in wrestling history. All right, he's a huge success in wrestling. And on Friday, I got a huge success just in general, Todd Wagner, who is a bona fide multi-billionaire. That's right. He owns 2929 Entertainment with Mark Cuban, has a stake in the Dallas Mavericks, has a stake in Access TV. It's a fascinating conversation about building an empire by uh, one of the guys who invented streaming, basically. Mark Cuban and Todd Wagner invented streaming, sold it for Boku Dinero, and uh, they're now both billionaires. Todd Wagner will be here. You want to know how to become a billionaire? Todd's going to show you how to do it. He's going to tell you how he did it, at least. That's coming up Friday. So in the meantime, in between time, we'll, stay, uh, we'll see you then. Stay hard. Stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. And a big, yeah, boy. Funku!